Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. We're looking at verses 28 to 34. As we said last week, I'm sure you know by now, and it's Matthew's concern as he writes this gospel that we understand that Jesus is the King, the Messiah. Obviously then the Son of God, God in human flesh. And therefore repeatedly throughout the gospel record, we find occasions where the writer gives us examples of Jesus' ability to cast out demons. He can do it instantaneously. He does it authoritatively. He does it with just a word. He does it with ease and gives us clear proof that he can handle the kingdom of darkness. Uh, as the Apostle John tells us in 1 John 3, 8, that the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. In other words, our Lord came into the world to destroy Satan's work. Uh, and ultimately, when he establishes his kingdom, that is exactly what will happen. Uh, Jesus has come to permanently destroy the works of the devil. And in casting out demons throughout his ministry, he was giving samples of that great power. In fact, on one occasion, he told the scribes and the Pharisees, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come. Um, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's Luke 11:20. 20. Uh, why? Because one of the marks of the kingdom will be the overthrow of Satan. And he's saying, if you see me doing it now, you know the kingdom has come. So Christ came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. And Matthew wants us to see the power he has to do that. And thus, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he records this tremendous work of Christ in chapter 8. Now, let me add a couple of other thoughts before we get, look at the text. The disciples themselves were aware that casting out demons was not easy. Uh, in fact, in Matthew 17, even though the Lord Jesus had commissioned them to do this, there was a demon-possessed boy from whom the disciples couldn't cast out the demon. And after Jesus did it, they said to him, why could we not drive it out? So they knew that they had trouble doing it, even though they had been commissioned by the Lord. So it's not an easy thing to do. We, shouldn't, we should not assume that because the Lord did it with ease, it's easy for us. Uh, there are people today who think they can run around and with little formulas cast out demons. Uh, in fact, there are websites on in which, and they, what they call deliverance ministries. Um, and they will give you formulas for how to do it or where to find a so-called deliverance minister in your area. Uh, they're deluded. In the first place, they have no such apostolic gift. Uh, they're not apostles in the biblical sense, so they can't have that gift. And that gift is not listed among the spiritual gifts listed for us in Romans and 1 Corinthians. So the idea of casting out demons is not an easy thing. Further, the Jews of Jesus' day were involved in exorcisms. They were involved in efforts to cast out demons. They had formulas and rituals that they went through. And according to Luke 11:19, after the Jewish religious leadership accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, uh, he responded, if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons... By whom do your sons cast them out? Uh, and in Acts 19, verses 13 to 16, we read about the seven sons of Sceva, who were uh, Jewish exorcists who tried to cast out a demon, 
It didn't work out too well for them. Uh, they tried to cast out this demon in Jesus' name uh, by saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the demon responded, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And, and then the demon-possessed man jumped on all seven of them and beat them up and tore off their clothes. So it says they ran away naked and wounded. Uh, and their experience with trying to cast out demons wasn't any different than other Jewish exorcists. Uh, they did it with fear and dread and apprehension and almost total failure. And so when Jesus came along and began to heal and easily cast out demons, the Bible says that they marveled at his ability to do such. For example, in Mark 127, it says they were all amazed so that they debated among themselves saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. You see, it wasn't just that he cast them out. It was the ease with which he did it. It was the absolute authority with which he did it. It was the power with which he did it. It shocked them. In fact, it was so easy and he did it with such power that they concluded he really was in collusion with the demons and the whole thing was a ruse. Uh, that was the Jewish leader's argument against him. They said, this whole thing is a phony deal, folks. Don't be kidded. Uh, this man is of the devil himself. Only if he were in collusion could he get such cooperation. Uh, so it wasn't just that he did it. It was that he did it instantaneously with absolute and total authority that was far beyond anything they'd ever seen in their own human amazement, uh, human experience. And it amazed them and startled and astonished them. Now, as I said, Matthew wants us to see that Christ is the one who can reverse the curse and set up the kingdom. And so Matthew shows us samples of his miraculous power. One who's going to bring the kingdom of God must be able to do away with the sickness. And Jesus did that, as we saw in the healing of the leper, the paralytic, and the woman with the high fever. One who is going to bring the kingdom of God must be able to deal with the forces of nature. And Jesus did that when he calmed the sea. And the one who's going to establish a kingdom must be able to deal with sin. That's going to be an issue with a miracle in chapter 9. And he must be able to overrule death. That'll also be illustrated in chapter 9. And in this miracle, he must be able to conquer demons. So Matthew gives us these nine miracles in chapters 8 and 9 to show us all the facets of Christ's great glorious power. So let's look at this passage in detail. We're going to see three aspects. The demon-possessed men... Secondly, the domination of Christ. And third, the desire of the people. Let's begin with the demon-possessed men. Let us read verses 28 to 31. When he came to the other side, into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. Now as we approach the story, Jesus has crossed the Sea of Galilee in a boat with some disciples. Uh, there had been uh, some other boats travel, trailing along as they have come from Capernaum. And by the time they were out in the middle of the lake, uh, night had set in, a storm arose, Jesus stopped the storm, calmed the sea, 
the water so it was perfectly placid and calm, they finished their journey to the eastern shore. Perhaps it was the early morning of the new day. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But I'm assuming that it was now daylight because there were already herdsmen out watching a herd of pigs. And they wouldn't do that at night. Uh, so the little boats come ashore and the disciples and Jesus are immediately confronted by an incredible situation. But first notice the location. It says, Jesus has now come to the other side of the lake into the country of the Gadarenes. Now this has caused a lot of theologians who sit around contemplating their belly button lint uh, a lot of problems. Uh, you see, here in Matthew, he refers to this location as the country of the Gadarenes. But Mark and Luke say Gerizines. And there are some manuscripts which use the, uses the name Gergesenes. Uh, so which is it? Well, most people simply say, I don't care, and maybe you don't. But we want to make sure the scripture is accurate, right? Uh, the best way to understand it is simply this. On the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, there's a little village called Gergesa or Gergesa. Uh, that village would have been about six miles across the lake from Capernaum, just a little rather insignificant village. But the topography of the land there and the geographical setting fits the story. There are cliffs that plunge down near the sea where a herd of pigs could come and fall to their death. It, it fits the geography. But the city of Gadara is much further south and inland, away from the sea, and does not really fit the setting for this miracle. And Mark and Luke say it took place in the country outside of Gerasa, uh, another large city in the Decapolis that was inland away from the lake. And so they say, well, that means that no one is right. Either Matthew got it wrong because he says it's in the region around Gadara, uh, or Mark and Luke got it wrong because they say it's in the region around Gerasa. Uh, so the Bible's wrong. But the best solution is simply this. Mark and Luke referred to the region as being the region of the Gerasenes. Uh, that is the region around the city of Gerasa. Uh, while Matthew referred to the area as being the region around Gadara, that is the country of the Gadarenes. Both are correct. Both were cities in the Decapolis, which was very Greek, very Gentile cities. And if you were anywhere on the eastern shore of the lake, you could be described as being from the region of whichever city you chose to refer to as the, that region. It's, it's just the same as if you live in Clearwater, but you're writing to a group of people about where you live and you say, I live in Pinellas County. Uh, but if I was writing about where you live, I might write he or she lives in the Tampa Bay area. Uh, both statements are correct. Uh, they're simply two different ways to describe the same area. So that's why Matthew says the country of the Gadarenes. Gadara was a major city. In fact, it was the regional capital of the Decapolis area. And although it was inland, its region extended all the way to the shore of the lake. And so the region was known as the country of the Gadarenes. And, and so in the country of the Gadarenes, near the village of Gergesa, uh, they arrive for their divine appointment with these two demoniacs. And so the little boats come to the shore, and it says, two men who were demon-possessed 
met him. Now, Mark and Luke only mention one man. However, neither one of them says there was only one man. Uh, it's kind of like when we read about Jesus being with the 12 disciples, but maybe only Peter is mentioned by name because he says something, as he usually did. Um, we don't doubt that the others were there. It's just that they weren't mentioned specifically. Uh, so it's obvious that there were two men because Matthew tells us that, but one was the primary figure with whom the dialogue in Mark 5 and Luke 8 takes, took place. It's clear that he was by far the more vocal of the two and possibly the more violent and dangerous and thus the main point of attention. Now, what does it mean to be possessed by demons? The Greek word simply means to be demonized. Uh, that is, un to be under the power, control, and influence of a demon. Whether they were residing inside the person, like here in this context, or residing uh, or merely living in the area, in someone's environment, influencing and controlling their actions, it's all the same. Uh, to be demonized means to be under the control of demons. In Ezekiel 28, God is pronouncing judgment upon the king of Tyre. And as you read through the chapter, you realize that God is speaking about more than just a mortal man, that he's actually speaking of Lucifer and his fall from glory to become Satan. So the implication is that Satan was the unseen influencer of the king of Tyre and his decisions. And in Daniel 10, there's a reference to the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Uh, that clearly refers to a demon who was assigned to influence the government of Persia. We'll talk about him later. So I have no doubt that there were demons assigned uh, to various world governments to control and influence the actions of their rulers. And in some cases, such as Adolf Hitler, I believe to directly possess and control the individual. Uh, now, demons can do a lot of things to people. They can tempt them. They can bring about disease. God allowed Satan to do that to Job. Uh, Paul called his thorn in the flesh a messenger of Satan to torment me. So demons can attack the physical. They can attack the mental. They can attack the spiritual. Uh, the scriptures tell us, for example, of demons making a man mute, of bringing blindness, of bringing physical deformity, and bringing epilepsy. Uh, they, so they can attack the physical. They can also attack the mental aspect, our minds. They can bring in insanity, as they did here in Matthew 8. Uh, they can bring a suicidal mania, as in Mark 9, where the individual who was demon-possessed continually attempted to kill himself. Uh, they can bring about masochism, as in this case here, uh, where in Mark's account, it tells us that the demoniac kept slashing himself and tearing and hacking at his flesh with sharp stones. Uh, so, And they can even cause murder, as they do in Revelation chapters 9 and 18. So they can disable the body and they can derange the mind. Further, they can attack the spiritual dimension. We're told in Scripture that demons are deceitful, using their human minions to teach doctrines of demons, uh, perversions of the truth to detract people away from the truth into idolatry and error. Uh, so they corrupt the truth, they bring about false religion and occult practices and all kinds of immoral behaviors, and they always produce evil, vile consequences. 
Now, let me see if I can give you a definition of demon possession that'll help. And by the way, if you ever try to understand this completely, you're going to be wasting your time uh, because you really have to, you have to realize that this is a supernatural reality. And we're not able to go any further than what the Bible takes us in comprehending it. But a definition that might help is this. Demon possession is a condition in which one or more demons inhabits the body of a human being so they can... Uh, so that they can control uh, at will that individual. Uh, now, there may be all different degrees, all different manifestations, but it, that's basically what it means. And by the way, this word that's translated demon-possessed is used 13 times in the New Testament, all of them in the Gospels. And Jesus said that the Gospel writers all and Jesus and the gospel writers all acknowledge the reality of demon possession. In fact, some Bible scholars believe that the gift of miracles or the gift of powers, as it literally translates from the Greek, that is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, 10 is the ability to cast out demons. I don't know that we can say that with certainty, but demon possession was a major problem in human life during that time. Now, you might ask, well, why was... There's so much more demon possession in those days than we see today. Well, one reason was because the Son of God was living among men. And so Satan and all his forces were there to do all they could to fight against him. Uh, when Jesus was on earth was the period of the greatest amount of visible demonic activity among mankind because his presence created an all-out war between Satan and God. Jesus had invaded the devil's territory and Satan was intent on defending it against Christ. And so we see all of these incidents of demon possession and activity during Jesus' time here on earth. A second reason why we don't see as much demon possession is that we don't live in a society that is centered on a false religious system that is controlled by Satan. And if you go to pagan tribes and cultures, there's all kinds of demonic idol worship and demonic activity. In certain areas of Africa, like Benin, for instance, uh, voodoo worship is the primary religion. And it is entirely a religion of demon worship. Uh, and the witch doctors are demon-possessed men. And all their demon gods have evil elements to their nature, and therefore they have to be appeased. And when those gods manifest themselves in evil ways, they put fear into the people and they accomplish their ends. Uh, for example, if a baby is born with a defect of some kind or a child gets very sick, there's an assumption that the child is cursed. And so they are sometimes sacrificed to the demon gods to try to appease them. Uh, so we don't see as much demon possession because we don't live in a place like that. If you live there, you would see it all the time. A third reason is that today we consider ourselves too sophisticated to recognize the presence and influence of demons in the lives of people. Uh, so we simply classify those who behave strangely and violently and shoot up schools and other places as mentally ill. Uh, we never consider that their minds might be under the control of demonic forces. Uh, I'm not saying that there isn't real Men, organic mental illness in some people. I do believe it's possible for someone to truly be mentally ill due to chemical imbalances in their brains. But I also believe 
but such cases are not nearly as common in our overeducated, highly psychologized society as, as it would have us to believe. Um, I think there are many cases of psychotic behavior that can be attributed to demonic influence or possession of the fallen reprobate minds of people so that they act out in evil, destructive, deadly ways. We often hear about or encounter someone whose mind and thinking shows clear signs of insanity and psychological imbalance accompanied with all kinds of bizarre behavior, but rather than recognizing that they may be possessed by or under the influence of demons, we just classify them as mentally ill. And interestingly, when you start researching into how that person became the raving lunatic that they are, you often find that they started out by pursuing a pattern of hidden immorality and sin in their lives, and they just kept feeding it, going deeper and deeper into it until their minds were twisted and lost to reality. And those are the minds which Satan and his demons love to control. Now, all of that leads to another question. Can a Christian be demon-possessed? And I think the answer is clearly no. Uh, a true believer cannot be demon-possessed because he or she has the Holy Spirit living in them and light cannot have any part with darkness. Uh, we have been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. And so the indwelling Holy Spirit will not allow a true child of God to be possessed by a demon. Uh, that was possible before salvation, but not after being truly saved. So if you've ever encountered someone, as I have, who behaves like they are demon-possessed, but tells you that he or she is a Christian, they aren't a genuine believer. Okay? So, before I move back into the text, any let me pause and ask, are there any questions there? Yes? Mm -hmm. Trying to teach them between demon, he called it demon oppression, not mm -hmm. possession, versus mental illnesses. He gave a really, really good uh, clarification of that. It's on his Martin Lloyd Jones trust website. Yeah. One of the things he said that I thought was helpful was that if it was demon oppression, that it always comes down to some manipulation of scriptural truth, because that's how the devil will attack by blinding people. Thank you. All right. Well, let's get back to the text then and look further at these two poor souls. One other thing to keep in mind about demon possession, when a person is demon possessed, the personality of the demon eclipses the personality of the one who is possessed. In, in Mark's account, when Jesus says to this man, what is your name? The demon answers, my name is Legion, for we are many. Uh, in other words, this man was possessed by so many demons, he wasn't even the one speaking. Uh, the name Legion was a term originally used in the Roman army for 6,000 soldiers. Uh, we can't say there were 6,000 demons in these two men, but it's very clear that there were many demons in each man, which gave them their incredible strength and viciousness. So demon possession means the... Uh, automatic projection of a new personality, intensely evil that eclipses the personality of the individual. It, it may come or go as it, or it may be constant. Now, look where these two guys are living. Verse 28, 
They were coming out of the tombs. Uh, this is not a cemetery like we think of a cemetery, okay, uh, with bodies buried in the ground and markers on the graves. No, these were caves, both natural and man-made, that were cut into the sides of the cliffs that are in that area. Uh, that was where people would place the bodies of their deceased family members. Uh, so these guys were living in them. Uh, now, this was primarily a Gentile area, but there were Jews who lived there too. Uh, if these guys were Jews, they had descended to the lowest of all defilements in Judaism. To touch a dead body was the greatest defilement to a Jew, and these guys were living among them. Uh, but they were so violent and deranged that there was no other place they could live. And I think that in, in a sense that's fitting because Satan is the ultimate merchant of death, isn't he? And, and these guys were living in a place that was associated with death. And the text says they were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. In other words, uh, they would attack anyone who came near them. They were vicious, fierce, frightening men. They were wild maniacs. Uh, if you study the other accounts in Mark and Luke, they tell you more about them. In Luke 8.27, it says that at least the primary subject was naked and had not worn clothes for a long time. Uh, it's interesting, but the only people you ever see in Scripture who were never ashamed of running around naked are Adam and Eve before the fall and raving demon-possessed maniacs. Uh, the moment sin came in, shame also came in. Uh, but when Satan influences the mind of someone, they lose their sense of modesty and the shame over their nakedness. Uh, so perhaps that tells you something about those that want to go to the nudist resorts up in Pasco County. Um, in uh, Mark 5... It says that at least one of the men, these guys, was so strong that they tried to bind him with chains, and no matter how strong the chains were, he broke the chains. Uh, he had tremendous amount of strength that these demons gave to him. And it says that he was constantly, both night and day, screaming among the tombs and the surrounding mountains and gashing himself with rocks. And since Matthew says that both of these guys were extremely violent, I'm sure both of them were doing the same thing. Now, that's quite a picture, isn't it? Jesus gets off the boat, and he's immediately confronted by these two guys that are stark naked, who run around screaming all the time, bleeding from where they gash themselves with stones, who had incredible strength and are well known for their violent behavior towards others who try to come that way. And according to Mark and Luke, they saw Jesus coming from a distance and went running towards him and the disciples. Now, if that had been me and you, I think we might have been just a bit scared. If something like that happened to me, I know I'd be hoping I was carrying my gun that morning and I'd be trying to get it out. Uh, so out of the caves they come, running down the hill towards Jesus. And all of a sudden, something very interesting happens. You would expect that they would have run up, got in Jesus' face, and started screaming at him. That's not what happened. According to both Mark and Luke, they ran up and fell down before Jesus. And the word that is used is the word which means to prostrate oneself in worship. Why? Why were they doing that? Because they know exactly who he is. Listen, demons are fallen angels. Before they joined Satan's rebellion, they were in his presence in heaven. They were involved with God. They know the second person of the Trinity. 
No one needs to help them with their Christology. They know and they knew that he was their judge and that he was the one who will one day condemn them. Demons hate and loathe everything about God, but they're powerless to do anything but bow down before him when they're in his presence, just as one day at his name every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So they fall down in verse 29 and they cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Stop right there. That phrase, what business do we have with each other, literally translates as what to you and us. It was a Jewish expression that made its way into colloquial Greek with meanings such as what do we have to do with you or what do we have in common or why are you bothering us? So they say, why are you bothering us? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Notice that phrase, before the time. They even had the right eschatology. They said, you're here too soon. They knew their future fate. So they said, this is not the time. You're out of sync. Are you going to torment us before the time? Think about it. These demons, these beings, are going to be damned for all eternity, and they know it. And they despise Jesus. They hate him. And yet, they worship him. Because they're forced to by his power. They can't resist it. They know intuitively that they're standing in the presence of the second member of the Trinity. They know intuitively that they are there with the Holy One of God who has the power to destroy them. And they say, this can't be. The timing is wrong. They even know the redemptive plan. They're better theologians than most people. They know this is Christ, the Son of the living God. Some cults and other religions don't even know what the demons know. And they apparently know that when the time is in the future, when they will be doomed and damned forever. That's fascinating because it may account for the fact that sometimes demons through mediums seem to be able to predict the future. Uh, remember, they already know Satan's plans. And it may be that they're already somewhat aware of the divine plan. And it's, so at certain points, they can anticipate what's going to happen. They were way ahead of the Lord's disciples. The book of Revelation hadn't been written yet. So the disciples have no idea when all this prophetic stuff is going to come to play, take place. But the demons knew. Look at verse 29 again. It's interesting that they describe him, they address him how? Son of God. Mark and Luke record them as saying, addressing him as Jesus, son of the most high God. Uh, in a different incident described in Luke 4:41, the demons cry out, you are the son of God. And it says they knew him to be the Christ. What an important statement. That, that term, the son of God, is a synonym for the Messiah. In, in Mar Matthew 16, 16, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says that it was God the Father who revealed that to Peter. So when these demons call him the Son of God, they are saying, you are the King, you're the Messiah, you're the Anointed One, you are the Christ. And we shouldn't be surprised by that because James 2.19 says the demons believe. And what do they do? They shudder. They tremble. They quake because they know the result. 
They know what's going to happen. They apparently know when. You might wonder, well, if they know all that, why do they oppose him? Why do they fight against him? Why, why did Satan tempt Christ? I think they thought that he might be somewhat less God than he, when, than he was when he was in heaven before the incarnation. And if they can get him in his humanness to sin, the whole plan of redemption will be over and he will be also doomed to eternal hell. But regardless of what they might have thought, it was their nature to oppose him, no matter what the consequences of the prospect for success. So in verse 30, they make a request and it's rather bizarre. It says, now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, if you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. They say, if you're going to cast us out. In Greek, that is what is known as a first-class conditional sentence, which means that the if is better translated, best, better understood, almost in the sense of since. Uh, the demons are saying, since you're going to cast us out, would you send us into that herd of pigs over there? It's a strange request. I mean, what good does that do? A demon possess pig? I mean, a pig is just a pig. Uh, why would they want to possess pigs? Well, we don't know, obviously. Uh, some people say, well, the demons need to be in something to, uh, to possess it. I'm not sure I'd go that far. Uh, but they obviously knew that Jesus was going to cast them out of these two men. And according to Luke's account, uh, they were begging Jesus not to send them to the abyss. The abyss is the place where God has imprisoned certain demons until he releases them during the tribulation to harm rebellious mankind. And according to Revelation 21 to 3, it is the place where Satan will be imprisoned for the thousand years during the millennial kingdom. In 2 Peter 2, 4, it's referred to by the term Tartarus or the pit. Uh, so these Demons think Jesus is going to send them to the abyss right then, and so they're asking him to acquiesce to them inhabiting these pigs rather than being sent there immediately. And the only living thing that was present other than humans, which they knew Jesus wouldn't let them inhabit, was this herd of pigs. Uh, pigs aren't kosher. In fact, they are one of the most despised of the unclean animals. Uh, so they would be the perfect creature for an unclean spirit to inhabit. Now, this herd of pigs was in the highly Gentile area known as the Decapolis. Decapolis is a Greek word meaning ten cities. Uh, there were ten cities that were all inhabited by Greeks and Romans. Uh, I'm sure there were some Jews living in that area too because it wasn't that far from Capernaum and Bethsaida, uh, just a few miles. I've heard preachers and read commentators who say, well, they shouldn't have been raising pigs there. Uh, that's why Jesus sent the demons into them because it was part of his judgment on these people for raising pigs. But that fails to recognize that this was predominantly a Gentile inhabited area. So a herd of pigs would not have been uncommon there. Uh, by the way, Mark 5.13 says there were 2,000 pigs in the herd. Uh, it was a large herd of pigs. So there must have been a lot of demons. Uh, we can only speculate what the demons were thinking. Maybe they thought they'd go into the pigs and they'd evade being sent to the abyss for a while. Uh, maybe they thought they could kill the pigs and their Gentile owners would get mad at Jesus and kill him for causing the death of all their pigs. It's impossible to say what they were thinking beyond that they were trying to evade being sent to the pit. Uh, so we've, we've seen Matthew's recounting of the two demon-possessed men. Now we come next to the domination of Christ. Look at verse 32. 
And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. When the disciples tried to cast out demons, even though they had the authority and empowering by Christ, they couldn't seem to do it. Matthew and Mark both recorded an incident in which they couldn't cast out a demon and had to get Christ to do it. But when Jesus speaks, they go. All they want to know is where they're allowed to go. Uh, Jesus says, go to them. It's a plural imperative. That means that confirms that there was more than one demon in each man. And it's present tense. So it's as if Jesus commanded them, you all go and keep going. Uh, so the demons all come out of the men and they went into the pigs. And the verse tells us the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. Now that's very interesting. You know why? Because here you have this huge herd of pigs, 2,000 of them, and they all go running down this very steep bank or cliff into the lake and drown. And I'll tell you why, what I find interesting about this. First of all, pigs can swim. Uh, in fact, according to an article that I read in National Geographic, pigs are excellent swimmers. In 2013, in 2013, a wild hog actually swam seven miles from France to one of the British Channel Islands. So, so then since pigs can swim, why did the entire herd drown? Well, I think it is because the demons are so evil they deliberately cause the death of all the pigs. Uh, the demons themselves certainly would not have drowned since they're supernatural beings, but like they're leader Satan, they would enjoy causing the death of anything and everything in God's creation. So they wouldn't even allow the pigs to live. Perhaps they were correct that in casting them out of the men, Jesus was sending them to the abyss to be imprisoned until the last days. And so this was their final act of hatred and vengeance against God's created order. We can't say for sure, but there, there isn't enough in the text to tell us, but that seems reasonable to me. And there are some people who get upset that Jesus allowed these demons to inhabit the pigs and cause their death. They accuse him of animal cruelty. Uh, what they don't realize is that almost every pig that has ever lived is destined for slaughter anyway. Yeah, those pigs were being raised for food for all the Gentiles in Decapolis. They were going to be dead before long anyway. The demons just hurried up the process a bit. Uh, and for all we know, after this was over, the owners may have had their herdsmen pull those dead pigs out of the water and start cutting them into hams, hams and ribs and pork shoulders to send to market. But think about this. How did Jesus command all those demons? He simply commanded them, go. And they went. When he first got off the boat, they knew he was in charge and they were afraid of what he was going to do. It wasn't that he did it, it was how he did it, instantaneously and totally. And that's significant because demons are very powerful beings. Mere men cannot deal with them. It's ridiculous for people to run around thinking they can cast out demons by simply commanding them to do so in Jesus' name. Remember what we said about the sons of, seven, of Sceva, seven sons of Sceva. That's exactly what they tried. Didn't work out too well. Demons are far more powerful than any man. Remember, they're fallen angels. Over in 2 Peter 2, the, the apostle speaks of false teachers who he described as being daring, self-willed, 
that they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. That is, they aren't afraid to speak against these fallen angels. There's a whole segment of the charismatic movement in which their false teachers will claim to bind Satan and cast out demons and the like. And those guys behave like they aren't even afraid of those demons, despite the fact that Peter says in verse 11 that even the holy angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. So demons are so powerful that even the holy angels don't revile them by their own authority. Uh, in June 9, it says that Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So demons are incredibly powerful. Psalm 103.20 says that angels are mighty in strength. There's another example in scripture that illustrates how powerful the demons are. In Daniel 10, there was an angel who appeared to Daniel to give him an answer to his prayer to God. <clears throat> and Daniel had prayed to God, trying to understand what was going to happen to the nation of Israel in the latter days. And three weeks later, an angel shows up, and in verse 12, the angel told him, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. In other words... Your prayer was heard on the very first day you prayed it, and I was sent to give you an answer. Verse 13, watch this. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days, three weeks. And then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. So, the, says, so this prince of the kingdom of Persia is not a reference to a mere mortal man. It has to be a demon who was in charge of influencing the actions of the nation of Persia because no human being is strong enough to resist and withstand a holy angel. And I remember at this point in time, at that point in time, the Medes in the Persian Empire had conquered Babylon where Daniel was, and so he's now under the rule of the Persian government. So the demon over the Persian Empire resisted the angel that God had sent to deliver the message to Daniel and was actually powerful enough to withstand him for three weeks so the angel, holy angel could not deliver the answer to Daniel's prayer. And so God sent Michael, the archangel, one of the chief angels in the hierarchy of heavenly angels, to help him overcome the demon of the kingdom of Persia so he could deliver the message. That's how powerful demons are. Their power far exceeds the power of any normal human being. And yet we know we're in a spiritual war against them because Ephesians 6.12 tells us what? That our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So if we're going to be successful in that war, we have to take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. All angels, whether holy or fallen, are extremely powerful. In 2 Kings 1935, one single holy angel killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. They also have superior intelligence. That's obvious from Ezekiel 28.3, which says that the king of Tyre, that would be Lucifer, that he is wiser than Daniel. 
and there's no secret that is a match for him. They have superior strength, as we've seen with this demoniac in our text, who Mark says kept breaking chains. They have supernatural power because 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says the Antichrist, who was indwelt by Satan, has power and signs and false wonders. They have superior experience. They have lived from before the creation of man, so they have been living through all, all of human history, so they understand how men function and think. They, they not only have great knowledge of God's nature and power, they also have great knowledge of man's nature and weaknesses. And so they are incredible creatures. Only the Lord Jesus Christ could crush the serpent's head. Only the Lord Christ can cast them into the pit in Revelation 20. And only he can deal with them here. And so he gives them their request, but not for their sake, but for his. And he sends them right into that herd of pigs. Now, there are some people who said, well, the demon, by sending the demons into the pigs, Jesus was letting the people know that they wouldn't be raising hogs. They shouldn't be raising hogs because they're an unclean animal. No, that had absolutely nothing to do with it. Uh, the lesson here for the disciples is that Jesus has absolute authority and dominion over the supernatural world of demons. He can cast them out. And to see, in response to their request, the entire herd of 2,000 pigs go running over the, down the embankment into the lake and drown, every one of those disciples knew something supernatural had just happened. They just saw that Jesus had absolute authority, divine authority over the world of the supernatural. And even more than that, to see the impact on those two men who were suddenly set free from the demons. That's, that's a part of the story that Luke doesn't include for us. Both Mark and Luke do. That brings us to our final point. But we'll have to finish that next week and then move on into chapter 9. So, any comments or questions or anything before we close? Did, let me ask this. Yes. Oh, go ahead. In Luke 10:19, when Jesus tells his disciples that they have power over serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemies, that's specifically to his disciples. Right. And then thereafter, you mentioned that the charismatic movement and how they twist that. Yeah. So, hypothetically, those, like when you were in the law enforcement, you came across those people, obviously, you had a gun. But in general, just as far as us dealing with people or situations. Let me say this. The Charismatics can talk about how they want to bind Satan, rebuke Satan, and all the rest. I have absolutely nothing to say to Satan. He's far more powerful than me. All I can do is rest in Jesus Christ, and he's conquered them all. And so I, I don't have anything to say to him. Uh, yeah, you're right that that power that he gave them was for them at that time while he was here. And... Uh, and when the apostles died out, so went that power and authority. So our responsibility is just to pray for those that we suspect yes. that are neighbors right. or, or whatever right. it is. Pray for them. Pray for them stay away. that the power of Christ will overcome Satan's oppression. Yeah, Satan's oppression and possession of them.
It's yes. So are all I'm not clear on it, are all demons fallen angels? Yes. They no. They are the same thing. Fallen all of the fallen angels, one third of the angels fell with Lucifer. And uh, they became his demonic forces. So yes. Yeah, yeah. Janetta Smith, you can add her to that list. She uh, she's still suffering the impacts of her concussion. She's a year and a half, two years, and a year and a half for Marsha and Janetta's just getting started good. So hopefully, hopefully she'll do better. So anything else? Let's close with prayer. Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this story, how it demonstrates your authority as God in flesh, the Messiah, uh, over the supernatural forces of the enemy. Lord, may we rest in that truth, knowing that uh, your indwelling spirit can never, uh, would never allow one of us who are your true followers, true believers, to ever be possessed by a demon. Lord, that, that doesn't mean that we don't face difficulties and that they cannot bring doubts and oppression into our lives. But Lord, help us to always be in close communication with you, trusting you for everything so that we recognize that you have won the battle. The, the war is over, ultimately. We may fight now, but ultimately we know how the story ends, and Jesus wins. Bless our time as we go into the service now. May we worship you and praise you and give you the honor and glory due your name. In Christ's name we pray, amen.